please, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8, and if you stand, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13 as we continue on now in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians and dive into yet again another difficult and yet incredibly important topic as it relates to idolatry and how we flee that as Christians. Before we read, I just would like to take a moment to express my deepest gratitude my family's gratitude for all of your care and concern and kindness for us as we've walked through the unexpected death of my dad this March. Thank you for your numerous cards, for emails, for all the prayers which went up on our behalf. And we were able to attend my dad's memorial service a couple weeks ago and we're able to clearly express our grief at his death, but also our joy as clear testimony of faith in Christ. And we certainly look forward to the day when we will meet him again in heaven. Now, if you would please follow along as I read from 1 Corinthians 8. Verses 1 through 13. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have, we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God, for we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died." And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Please be seated. Nearly every year, we have the privilege of traveling to India to work with our missionaries in the city of Delhi. And when you arrive in the city, one of of its many striking features is the over 50 major temples and literally hundreds of minor temples and shrines that dot the landscape throughout the city. In fact, as of 2023, as of this year, there were about 2 million temples in India with more being added every day. And this is not surprising because India is a land dominated by Hinduism, which has over 330 million gods and deities. Now, before we express too much amazement at all those gods and all that worship, we need to Remember that we too, in the West, in the United States, live in a world that's full of idol worship. Oh, sure, here we don't see the bronze statues or the wooden shrines, but that doesn't mean that we aren't worshiping false gods. We've just gotten rid of the middleman. See, instead of worshiping a golden Buddha, we worship the idols of our hearts. Idols have always been about what we desire, whether comfort, security, sustenance, family, riches, fame. So here in America, we worship our idols by pursuing those things directly, and we do so with reckless abandon. You see, the modern man gazing lustfully at pictures of a woman on the internet is not really that much different than the ancient man offering a sacrifice to the fertility goddess Asherah, the consort of Baal in ancient Israel during the time of Elijah. Both are looking to have their sexual pleasures satisfied. 
Christians, however, are called to abandon idolatry and to worship the one true God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to his commands in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is him in whom all our pleasures are satisfied as we abandon our lives and submit to his lordship. But our pleasures are strong. Our sinful flesh is relentless, and the enemy of our soul has many tricks up his sleeve. So we must constantly evaluate our behavior, recognize areas of idolatry, and flee from them immediately. Now, this has ever been so, but certainly not least in Corinth, the city of 1,000 temple prostitutes. And so Paul now turns his attention to the issue of idolatry and how it can be recognized and avoided. So what we'll see this morning is that Christians are to worship God alone by bending the knee in repentance and faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and must be careful to identify and flee from all acts of idolatry engaged in by the culture around them. Christians are to worship God alone by bending the knee in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ as Lord and we must be careful to identify and flee from all acts of idolatry engaged in by the culture around us. Very simply, Christians are to flee from idolatry. Now, in chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians, we finished those several months ago, and now we're picking back up in chapter 8, Paul had just finished an exhortation against sexual immorality, which ended in a detailed discussion of relationships in the church that included marriage, widowhood, betrothal, and singleness. Through all of that, his primary exhortation was, remain as you are, because God is sovereign in your situation. He will sustain you where you are is where God has for you to be. His will is always found right where you are. Now, in chapter 8, Paul transitions to a discussion on the deadly dangers of idolatry, which will essentially take us from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through chapter 10, verse 33. He moves from 1 Corinthians 6.18, which is flee immorality, to 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This morning, we we're just going to get our bearings. We're going to work through an overview of these three complex chapters so that we don't lose the forest for the trees as we spend the next several weeks, possibly months, on this vitally important topic. We'll cover this overview this morning in three main points. Idolatry in Corinth explained, idolatry in Corinth surveyed, and idolatry in Corinth exposed. So first, idolatry in Corinth explained. And really this morning, as you drop your eyes down to the text, chapter 8, verse 1, we will work our way through chapter 8, verse 1a. And that's it. So here we go. It's the only direct text I'll, I'll read that we're going to exposit, as it were, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. That's it. That's all we're going to cover. Right, what does that actually mean? Because there is nothing in the book of Corinthians that is easy. Right? We go, oh, I got this. And many people teach these chapters. Oh, it's all about liberty and it's all about Christian uh, freedom. Well, it is about those things to some degree, but it is much more complex than that. There is a, an entire argument built around the nature of idolatry and how that impacts liberty that takes a lot of work to, to walk our way through. Additionally, bringing, bridging this particular gap, bridging the gap of immorality is relatively simple. Bridging the gap of idolatry, when you're walking from the time in Corinth where there's idols everywhere, and then walking it into our experience here in the United States is a little bit more difficult. It's going to be tricky. We're going to have to be careful. And I'm not going to do a lot of that this morning as far as bridging the gap directly to say, okay, this is exactly what idolatry looks like, but we're getting there. First, we need to set up what this actually means, what our context is, and then the principles underlying it so that we can then apply it directly to where we are today. So, 
when Paul says, now concerning, he is, these are his code words for switching to a new topic, right? Remember that the book of 1 Corinthians was written really largely in response to something that Paul had heard, a report that he'd heard from Sophie's people, probably a report from several of the missionaries that he sent, and very likely a letter, a communication from the Corinthians themselves asking him questions and very possibly trying to correct his theology, right? coming against Paul and saying, we're not going to do that. You've said this, we're doing this. And that's probably true here, right? Underlying chapters 8 through 10 in Paul's strong exhortation, right, is most likely a refusal by the Corinthians to actually abide by his commands concerning idolatry. So he starts gently, works works it out through the ideas of conscience and liberty, but ends up in chapter 10 by saying, you would best not make God jealous by participating with demons. It gets really serious really fast. So we're going to walk our way through what this means. So he says, now concerning, he's going to address another issue that they have brought to the table, and it is things sacrificed to idols. If you have an ESV or an NIV, it says food sacrificed to idols, and that's really the idea. It's not just anything. Largely, it had to do with the food that was sacrificed, which then was either eaten by worshipers or sold in the marketplace or eaten by individuals in their homes. Those are the three areas that essentially Paul deals with when it comes to this idea of idolatry. But make no mistake. It's not just about the food, it's about the idolatry that's involved with the food. That's the primary issue that Paul is going to deal with. So idolatry, somebody the worship of any false deity for the purpose of gaining assistance in satisfying our desires. That's idolatry. Somewhat more plainly, I guess, an idol is anything you'll sin to get, sin to keep, or sin because you don't have. Right? It can be manifested in some kind of wooden idol, and it can be manifested simply in the desires of your own heart. Idolatry always has been rampant because there's only one God, as we will see. So everything else is a worship of a false deity. There are no other gods, even though there are demons, other spiritual powers. So Paul will really deal with three different aspects of this issue in chapter 8 and through chapter 10, right, when it comes directly to things sacrificed to idols. He will talk about it, begin in chapter 8 by discussing participating in a religious meal in which part of the worship involves eating food sacrificed to idols. It's really important. All these incidents are not the same. He begins with an actual worship service. What do you do? What, what is, how do you respond when you are at a worship service in which this food is being served and you eat it? This issue involves the need to care for the conscience of other believers, but Paul will ultimately label this participation as idolatry, and he will forbid it in the strongest of terms. That is, eating during a worship service, eating that meat. He will condemn this in chapter 10 as idolatry, even though he starts in chapter 8 by raising the issue of Christian liberty. Secondly, and this is really at the end, really chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through 10, verse 23, is about this first issue, uh, idolatry directly. And then the last couple of verses of chapter 10, he'll bring up two additional issues. That is, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols and was purchased in the marketplace. Paul will place this strongly in the realm of conscience. It's not a sin to do that. And he will offer them, he'll say, feel free to eat any meat sold in the marketplace, just don't ask questions for conscience sake. But not your conscience, for the sake of the conscience of unbelievers. Why? Because if an unbeliever knows that you are eating meat sacrificed to idols and that you're aware of that, his conscience might be strengthened to go worship those same idols. That's going to be the issue in chapter 10 at the end of it. And then also, if an unbeliever invites you to their home, here's the third thing, the third situation Paul deals with. Let's say that unbeliever serves you meat, right? You're just to eat it. You're at an unbeliever's house. It was probably sacrificed to idols. Just go ahead and eat it. But 
If that unbeliever, as he comes to serve the meal, says, this has been sacrificed to idols, Paul says, don't eat it. Why? For conscience sake. Not your conscience. You have the freedom to eat that. Their conscience. Again, what? Well, they don't like that you eat meat. or No, the issue is if they know that you know that that meat was sacrificed to an idol and you eat it, they might be strengthened in their idolatry. And so therefore, you have to be so careful, not only for the conscience of believers, but also for unbelievers. And the primary issue is avoiding or fleeing idolatry. That's the issue raised in, this, in these three chapters. Now, eating meat sacrificed to idols is, is not the first place we deal with it, or it's not an unusual thing to deal with in the Old and New Testaments. Now, probably the most famous form of this, this idea of eating food at a worship service, is raised in Numbers chapter 25. And you might remember that there, Balaam was uh, the king of Moab, Balak, comes to conscript Balaam, a pagan prophet, to curse the nation of Israel. And so Balaam goes to do that, and Balak says, look, I'll pay you handsomely for this. Balak, or Balaam goes to try to do that, and the Spirit of God uh, descends upon him and doesn't allow him to curse Israel. Every time he tries three times, a blessing comes out instead. And Balak says, hey, done, I'm done with you. You get no payment because you didn't curse Israel. Well, Balak, or Balaam, wanted his payment. He was a pagan man, and so he couldn't get it through the cursing of Israel with his prophecy. So what he did, we know from Scripture, is he goes back to Balak and says, look, I couldn't curse Israel, but guess what? If you do these certain things, God himself will curse his own people and judge them. What was that? That was to send their women down amongst the children of Israel, begin to have parties and feasts to the pagan gods, get involved in pagan immorality, intermarry and get involved sexually with them, and God himself will bring his judgment on his people. And that's exactly what happened. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. When Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Food almost always combined with worship in ancient times, in Corinth, and in most idol places where idols are observed. Right? Now, we know that this was cooked up by Balaam. Right? Later on, we find that Balaam is killed. Uh, but also, Revelation 2.14 rats him out directly. Right? So Paul is speaking to one of the churches. Or excuse me, John is speaking to one of the churches. Jesus, actually. He says, but I have a few things against you because there are some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Well, what's that? who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Same phrase, eat things sacrificed to idols. We see that later on in our text here. So this is the teaching of Balaam, eat things sacrificed to idols, which was to engage in idolatry and then, along with it, immorality. Well, this issue kind of explodes on the scene in the New Testament, not so much, say, in the Church of Jerusalem, which was a largely Jewish church. And for the time, or really the time of silence, the 400 years of silence from Malachi down to the beginning of the Gospels, largely Israel had put away the worship of false gods overtly, right? So they weren't having idol temple feasts. They, they weren't, you know, having parties to pagan deities, although certainly they were still serving idols in their own hearts, Right? But once the Gentile churches begin to get involved in the overall worship of God, there becomes this question. How do we relate to our culture in light of its rampant idolatry? And one of the key issues was, can we eat with them? Can we eat at these idols where these idols are being worshipped 
what can we do? And how can we still honor and please God, not offend Jews? A variety of issues. So that was brought by Paul and Barnabas and several others that went up to a council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And after debating, the church talked about it, the leaders talked about it, the elders talked about it. They came up with a joint decision that the elders then published, Acts 15, 29. Here's what they said. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols. That was one of the primary things they came up with. No, actually, you can't. And I I would say, as I'm going to argue through this text, that has to do with sitting and eating at a sacrifice, eating the food when you're in that particular location. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication, immorality. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. And we see this again at the end of the apostolic age in Revelation 2.20 to a different church, right? 2.14 was to want to, 2.20, where John says this, I have this against you. So another teacher that was leading the people astray, not the teaching of Balaam, but another teacher, here it is that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This is a big deal. And the church there in Revelation chapter 2 was about to be judged, have their lampstand removed because of involvement in idolatry represented by this eating of the meat sacrificed to idols. It is important to understand that Immorality and idolatry are integrally linked. Immorality is the handmaiden of idolatry. If a person or society refuses to acknowledge and worship the one true God, they will descend rapidly into whatever level of perversion they can pursue. Whatever level of sexual immorality they can get to based on the culture and the laws, they will pursue that. Because to reject the one true God is to then reject his standards. And so it is no surprise at all that the Apostle Paul moves from a discussion of immorality, chapters 5 through 7, to a discussion of idolatry because they always come together. Why do you have this immorality? Because you still, Corinthians, are dealing with idolatry in the church. Remember that the immorality they were dealing with was not by unbelievers at the church in Corinth, but by believers there. They were probably consorting with prostitutes. They had left a man alone who was sleeping with his father's wife. These were Christians, the majority of them. Paul calls them believers. He says, you have allowed this immorality. Well, why? Now he's going to get, I think, an even more fundamental issue because you are still practicing idolatry. You as Christians are allowing idolatry to pervade your practice, and it has to go both for conscience sake and liberty's sake, as we will see, but also so that you do not make the God of Israel, your God, the God of believers, jealous. And I would say, essentially, that the key verse for 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I think that colors everything that's going on. That's the command. Flee from idolatry, specifically when you are worshiping at an idol, a feast where idols are being worshiped, and then also in relationship to unbelievers as you, are, as you are with your conscience being careful not to harm their understanding, not to, not to encourage them to obey or to bow down to idols. Now, Paul has already stated that idolatry is a big deal. Why? Because there is only one God. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, really chapters 1 and 2 lay out Paul's entire reason for preaching, for teaching, for building a church. And that's what? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we will see in chapter 8, there's only one God. 
The Lord Jesus Christ then, his death, burial, and resurrection become the only means of access to God. He himself is fully God, and the only way to enter into a relationship with God is through Christ. Everything else is idolatry. There's only one God. This is the basis of Paul's entire epistle. His one message, Jesus Christ and him crucified, but he's also condemned idolatry in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Verse 6, verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And Certainly he puts idolaters in a list of other things, fornicators, homosexuality, but also things like drunkenness and covetousness. But what Paul will reveal in these particular chapters is that there is a unique nature to idolatry which brings with it the condemnation of God, just like he talked about immorality. There's a unique nature to that because it it really violates the nature of intimacy with God as well as idolatry which causes us or directs us away from loyalty to the one true God. These are just sins as it were, but these are sins which uniquely ensnare even believers, and so he's, he's devoting additional time to them. So let's look now, we're still under A, which is idolatry in Corinth, explain. Let's just talk a little bit about the cultural situation as far as we are aware of it, as best we can know. So what was the nature of idolatry in Corinth, in their culture? Well, I mean, this is clear. Every part of life in Corinth was tied to idolatry. Every part of life in culture, in all cultures, was tied to idolatry. I've been reading a fascinating book on the rise of Rome from the, from the founding of the city to the end of the early republic, and everything was about idolatry. Every part of life, private, social, economic, political, military, nothing was without a sacrifice to the gods. Everything was in light of the deities that they thought existed and that they were trying to appease so they could get what they wanted. Everything. If you were, if you were in your home, you worshipped certain deities that, that you, were, uh, you had allegiance to so that they would bless you. Socially, any kind of social conversation was built around what deities were, were related to your patrons or to your clients and how you were pleasing those deities. Economically, all of the trades and all of the, all of the activity involved in making money was also built around appeasing the gods. You couldn't just walk into work and do what you wanted. There were sacrifices to the gods that had to be made. There was an allegiance to certain gods of even certain trades. And this didn't just impact you because if you didn't give allegiance to that God and something goes bad for the traitors around you, for the people around you, they blame you because the gods weren't appeased. Everything was tightly tied, certainly politically. It's fascinating, in Rome, the two consuls who, who shared power, they were also the high priests. You might not have known that. In Roman government, there was no separation of church and state. The church was the state and the church was led by the by the political leaders. They were the high priests. And so everything they did was related also to the gods that they served. That's why that the tight tie of Caesar worship and the gods that they also worshiped are so tightly tied together and so important for the entire country, really the entire Roman world to be part of. And then certainly military pursuit was always built around the appeasement of the gods. Right? You had to make sure that the proper gods were properly appeased. Now, it is true and there was a pragmatic side to all of this, right? We just go through the motions, we do the things that we need to do. But there was also a deeply held religious belief that these gods were real. Even if you're just going through the motions, if you didn't do that and something bad happens, the gods are the ones that are coming for you. 
Right? So while there's external adherence, there was also a firm underlying worship of these deities that were believed to exist at one level or another. Society was built around appeasing these deities. Well, what was the actual practice then of idolatrous sacrifices? So everywhere you go, there had to be a sacrifice made of something. Right? They were everywhere and this took the form of individuals going to temples or shrines most often to make these sacrifices. Well, why? To honor the gods, to earn favor for family or for the individual worshiper, for a city, for a country. The practice essentially in these individual sacrifices was that one-third of the sacrifice, whatever food or meat that it was, was burned to the god. One-third was given to the priests. So therefore, there was a ton left over. There were so many sacrifices, the priests couldn't gorge themselves on all of it, so they would go make money by selling it in the marketplace. That will come in in chapter 10 a little bit later. So they would go sell it there because they were going to make money because they couldn't eat all the food. And then one third was often given to the one making the offering. So they, either they would take it home and eat it, or they would also sell it in the marketplace, depending. Right? Now, one of the things we know, Shemnagartha reveals in his commentary, is that not only were the gods appeased, so this food was valuable because it had appeased a particular god, but also, in general, the negative side was true. You had undone the, the evil spirit influence that was on that food or that if you ate the food, it, re it would remove the evil spirits from your life because it had been sacrificed to this particular God. So it was both a positive and the negative side of the sacrifice. So the meat would have been highly valuable because it was honoring a God and it was helping deliver you from evil spirit influences. Well, then that just flows right into the importance of the idolatrous meals. Not every sacrifice was a meal, but many of them were. So you would go and you would you would perform this sacrifice on a community level. So there'd be a variety of people involved, and you would bring them around with you. You would honor the God. This enabled you to be involved in social life, right? You were being civic and community-minded if you did this. It was tied into your loyalty to the government. Everything was attached. So these were the social occasions, but they were also the worship of these deities. The practice of these meals was very similar to the individual sacrifices. That is, one-third of the meat was, was burned before whatever God was being honored. Then one-third was, in this case, given to the worshipers to eat during that time. There was another third that was usually devoted, placed on the, the table devoted to the God, where the priests were ministering and they would eat, but then everyone else would also gorge themselves on that as well. So the goal was to sacrifice the meat to then gorge yourself to eat the food as a social occasion as well as a religious occasion. In fact, Gordon Fee goes so far as to say that these kinds of idolatrous meals were the restaurants of, of antiquity. That's often where you would go to socialize and to eat, to go out to eat as it were, but it was, make no mistake, a religious sacrifice. It was a time of worship. And again, Paul will make that very clear in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, What's the appeal of these idolatrous meals? This is really important. Why is Paul even bringing this up? Why is it that the Corinthians didn't just immediately go, that's ridiculous. There's no way we're going to go sit in a temple that, of the God we formerly worship and eat food sacrificed to that God. We're going to avoid that entirely. But they didn't. That's why this is being written. They were still participating in those feasts. Well, what made them so valuable? Well, I think first and foremost... If you removed yourselves from those feasts, even those social occasions, you were also removing your contact with unbelieving family and friends. See, your family members were still all in the pagan society. 
And your connection to them was built around this worship of false gods. So if you didn't do that, if you didn't go to those places, then you couldn't associate with your family, which was a really big deal. David Garland said, for example, even today in certain societies, for example in China, to advise the Chinese not to offer food and not to eat the food in ancestor worship would be to them to implicitly advise them not to love their parents, not to practice love towards others, and ultimately not even to be Chinese. That's how tightly this was tied together. You're not Roman. You're not you know, Greek. You're not of this, and you're not of this family because you won't participate in these worship services. So certainly there was a pressure to remain involved. Additionally, there's retaining the contact, as we've mentioned, with community events, the celebrations going on, and certainly to retain business and social connections for advancement and influence. Think about it. In chapters 1 and 2, really 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul was revealing the fleshly nature of the Corinthians in that they wanted to use their religion to get ahead. That's how they had always operated. You used your religion to advance your status, and they brought that into the church, and they continued to be involved in it in the community. And Paul says, you can't do that. You can't operate according to worldly principles in your pursuit of Jesus. The two are entirely separate, and so it is with these idol feasts, as we will see. Joining the meal, again, David Garland says, was extremely important in the ancient world because they served as markers of socioeconomic class divisions, as opportunities to converse and build friendships, and as a means to fulfill your social political obligations. You would be ostracized in the community. So that made the eating, these, eating at these feasts very desirable. Well, now, kind of given the background of what the Corinthians were facing, let's just do a, a very brief overview. So this is B on your outline. Idolatry in Corinth surveyed in chapters 8 through 10. There's a couple of main points here. And in, chapters, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, we have an introduction to the dangers of idolatry. And I read that this morning. Warning against the misuse of knowledge about God to misunderstand how to relate to society. Warning against causing a weaker brother to defile his conscience by participating in idolatry. I'm going to argue as we work our way through that, that in chapter 8, Paul is talking about an issue of conscience and liberty, but that in in uh, someone seeing you eat in an idol temple, the issue was that you actually were engaged in idolatry and that that person would be drawn into idolatry because they didn't properly understand the knowledge that they'd been given. So it's more than simply harming them and their conscience. It was actually defiling them and you because you were engaged in an act of idolatry when you did that. That's going to be my argument. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 27, go ahead and turn to chapter 9, verse 1. So Paul has just been talking about food, verse 13 if, of chapter 8. If it causes my brother to stumble, I won't eat it. In chapter 9, like he, he takes this immediate left turn. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus my Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? He launches into a whole chapter of a defense of his apostleship. Why? I'm convinced it's because they weren't obeying his commands about idolatry. And he's saying, look, I'm an apostle. I'm giving you the word of God concerning idolatry. You need to obey what I say. You're my seal of apostleship in the Lord. You need to pay attention to apostolic authority when it comes to avoiding idolatry. The same, of course, would be true for us. It's just that the Apostle Paul's words were then written down, so apostolic authority flows out in form of Scripture. So please understand, this is not my authority this morning to call you away from idolatry. 
This is not the church's authority. This is, this is not the elder's authority. This is the authority of the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, who carries with him the authority of Jesus himself. And that's what Paul is saying in chapter 9. Not only, though, that his authority is sufficient, but also that his example is sufficient. He himself laid aside anything which would draw someone towards idolatry or would keep them from coming to Jesus. Anything he would lay aside, any liberty, anything at all, so that others would not be stumbled away from the living God. He says, look, you need to follow my example in this as well as respond to my authority. Then in chapter 10, look there, chapter 10, verse 1, he seems to take another left turn, right, where he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What? So then we're going to talk about Israel, and they're being baptized into Moses, and that strange thing with, you know, Jesus was the rock that followed them, and we'll get to all of that. But the bigger picture is that he's using that as an example of what? Well, look at verse 6. Now, these things happen as an example, or examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave, do not be idolaters. There you have it. If you want to look at what idolatry does to people who claim to be the people of God, the Israelites, understand that as they engaged in idolatry, God was not pleased. And we'll drop down to chapter 10, verse 22, where Paul says, or do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he are we. And that was by participating in the idol feasts, right? As we will see from the really verses 11 or verses 12 down through that verse 22. That they were excusing their actual participation in the worship service to the idols and saying, it's no big deal because of the knowledge that we have about God. And Paul says, you misunderstand, that's to demons. Oh, there are no other gods, that's true. But the Gentiles are worshiping demons. They don't know it. You ought to know it. And you're not allowed to do that. You are challenging God. So, powerful stuff as Paul moves towards the, the condemnation of idolatry. And then he works his way. On. Look, actually, look at verse 19. Paul says, what do I mean then? As he condemns this worship service that they would eat food at. That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Same argument in chapter 8. He says, no, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, or do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? So he, he, well, he begins in chapter 8 with, there is an issue here of liberty and conscience, but you're going to destroy your brother because... Being involved in this kind of worship, eating the food there, is actually participating with demons. And you can't commune with God and commune with demons at the same time. Sorry. You may not do that. Then he finalizes in chapter 10, verses 23 to 33, with a clarification on what to do with meat sold outside of the actual sacrifice or eaten at home. And he says, there you have freedom. That is complete freedom. You can partake of that unless... You find out, unless they tell you, hey, that was sacrificed to an idol, and then you can't eat it. So verse 25 of chapter 10, eat anything sold in the market without asking questions for conscience sake. Who would you ask questions of? The vendor? Hey, was that sacrificed to an idol? Maybe they had little labels. Sacrificed to idols. Non-sacrificed to idols. Organic, non-organic. Ah, who knows? All right? Nonetheless, if you know, if somebody says, oh, by the way, that meat, that was sacrificed to an idol, that's an unbeliever out in the marketplace. You put it down. Why? Because you might encourage him to go continue to serve that God because you're happy to eat the food. 
Same way if an unbeliever, it says later on in verse 27, if an unbeliever invites you into their home, same thing. If they, if they serve the, the, the food, just eat it. Don't ask questions. It's not don't ask, don't tell, right? So if you know, oh, you would be sinning. No. Even if you knew that it was sacrificed to idols, you could still eat of it. But if they knew you knew, then they might be strengthened to go keep serving their idol, which would keep them locked in idolatry, and they would blame you for it. That's the issue. Don't harm their conscience in that way. Be so careful. Why? Because everything is done for the gospel, because Jesus alone is to be glorified. So now let's give some summary statements. Idolatry in Corinth exposed. These are the bigger picture issues that we will walk our way through over these next months, but it just seems good to keep these in mind so that we don't get lost, the forest for the trees. Number one, the proper use of Christian knowledge about God, the nature of idolatry and not serving false gods, the proper use of Christian knowledge about God is to edify the body in love. That's chapter 8, verse 1 that we just read. He says, concerning things sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. You can't use your knowledge about the one true God to harm other people. You must love them and care for them, both their conscience and their behavior. Two, Christians must not use their proper knowledge about God to participate in cultural acts which will defile the consciences of others by tempting them to practice idolatry. What you do in the culture matters and how other people view it and what you're actually doing is important. That was verse 10 of chapter 8. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Right? It goes on to say his conscience is defiled. He's actually, it says you destroy your brother. This is much stronger than just somebody, oh, you stumbled him. And it's not first, don't read Romans 14 and 15 directly into this discussion. There's some crossover, but it's not exactly the same thing. In Romans 14, 15, they're dealing with neutral issues. In 1 Corinthians 8, he's dealing with, in this first case, when you're worshiping at an idol's temple, he's dealing with a non-neutral issue. Some of the similar things involve, but don't read one into the other. We'll work our way through that. You must be careful in how you participate in culture because you might be practicing idolatry and you might cause someone else to, even if you think you're not. Three, Christians must carefully exercise their liberty in an idolatrous culture for the benefit of believers and the salvation of unbelievers. Let's be so careful that our knowledge of God doesn't lead us to harm the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. I want to be so careful that my knowledge of God doesn't somehow steal from the thunder of the gospel. Four, Christians must respond to authoritative apostolic teaching on idolatry by obedience and imitation. That's chapter nine. When God tells you to stop being an idolater, you had best listen when he does that through his ordained, inspired apostle. Five, Christians must heed the example of God's dealings with Israel as strong warnings against idolatry. Verse 11 of chapter 10, which we read, these things happen to them as an example, and they are written for our instructions upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, the Corinthians, take heed lest he fall. Right? So what you think you know about God is not what you actually know. Six, Christians must not use their knowledge that there is one true God to excuse participation in idolatrous practices. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 that we read. Seven, 
Christians must beware of any action which would harm the conscience of an unbeliever by affirming their idolatrous practices. Even though that particular behavior is acceptable for you to do, it might strengthen them to something which is idolatry for them. And then eight, Christians, and really this is our our final point leading us to communion this morning. Because all of this ties in, right? The issue of idolatry ties into the one true God who made the one actual sacrifice on our behalf, the only one worthy of worship, the only one worthy of giving your entire life. So Christians are to live for the purpose of bringing glory to the one true God through honoring Jesus Christ as Lord. Go back to chapter 8. And we'll dig deeply into this in weeks to come, but one of the most stunning statements in all of Scripture about the nature of God, about the deity of Jesus, about the way that God is honored and pleased, and about our purpose for living. Read with me, chapter 8, verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, people are worshiping and honoring all kinds of fake deities, thinking they are real, and being impacted by that worship, but... Yet, verse 6, strong contrast. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. He is the creator and owner of everything, and we exist for him. Not these false gods, not these false deities, not the idols of our hearts. There's only one real God. He is the one who is the creator of all things, and our only purpose in existence is to honor and please him. We have one purpose. To bring him glory. From him, through him, back to him, says Romans chapter 11, are all things. Put away the idols. Put away the other things that would bring you satisfaction. Put away the other reasons for your living, the other purposes for life, because there is only one purpose. It's not that you believe there's only one purpose. There is only one purpose, and you had best believe it. Because that God exists and you are for him one way or the other. His purposes will be accomplished through you. Would it be that we would willingly bend the knee? But how is God pleased? How is he honored? What does it mean that we are to rightly relate to him? There's only one way to do that. Next part of chapter 6 or verse 6. And one Lord Jesus Christ. Absolute equality, by the way. One God the Father. One Lord Jesus Christ. Equal in deity. Although containing, although as the Trinity having personality as well. Jesus Christ, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. There's only one way to be rightly related to God and that is through Jesus. Not some other deity, not some other purpose, not some other pleasure, only through Jesus, both fully God. Jesus being the one who then lays down his life for us who dies and is buried and rises again on the third day that we would have new life and you can only Fulfill your purpose of properly honoring God when you come on bended knee in repentance and faith. And that's what we celebrate this morning. That's it. There's only one purpose. And communion really drives us back to that reality. We are communing with the true God in this time. So if those who are going to serve communion would come 